Today's episode of Beyond the Rut is sponsored by Capshow, which is the ultimate AI content marketer for entrepreneurs who podcast, vlog, or live stream like yours truly. Stay tuned throughout this episode to discover more ways you can use Capshow for your content. For now, let's get straight into the episode. If you feel like you're stuck in a rut, then this is the episode and podcast for you. Welcome to Beyond the Rut, the weekly podcast about inspiring and equipping you to make your own path and live the life you've always dreamed of beyond the rut. I'm one of your hosts, Jerry, and in just a moment, Brandon is going to join us as we have a conversation with Dr. James Kelly. He is a professor, author, and podcaster who explores what authentic leadership looks like. And in fact, he just recently published a book called The Crucible's Gift, and he explores how leaders overcoming adversity actually helps them bring out their best characteristics, but sometimes their worst as well, and how you as a leader and you as just a human being can bring out your best self when you overcome your own adversity and go through your own trials of a crucible. So sit back and relax unless you're driving. In that case, we need you to stay safe as we have a conversation with Dr. James Kelly about how leaders overcoming adversity can become their true authentic selves. Here we go. Hey, Brandon, welcome back to your own show, and uh, I bet you're happy with that new headset, huh? I very much am. I have a 270-foot cord, so this is awesome. (laughs) So uh, if you hear any background noise, it's just Brandon testing out how far he can take that headset. Uh, It's like a brand-new toy. You'd think it was Christmas all over again. I'm going to run to the restroom real quick, but I'll still be on. Oh, boy. Don't leave the mic here, though. (laughs) Uh, and so we have calling in with us today, uh, right outside of, well, uh, Dubai, 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 Dubai. I just, uh, I, I just sound excited to say it that way. I don't know why, but what the guy said when he found it, Dubai, look, <laughs> there's a special place for you. <laughs> so anyway, this is Dr. James Kelly, author of the crucible's gift. Uh, and it's uh, five lessons on authentic leadership. Did I say that right? Five lessons from authentic leaders, authentic who thrive in adversity. Not just yeah. leaders, authentic, just like him. How's it going, James? Yeah. Good. Thanks, guys, for having me on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Now, what we love to do is we like to start these off with a little icebreaker. And uh, let's see here. Wouldn't it be funnier if we said we hate to do this, but we do it anyway? Because somebody somewhere told us we have to. There you go. It was in a book. It, it was actually. <laughs> Jared easily said so. No, actually, somebody said we have to do this, and so we just did it. We're followers so, now. We're I know. Not Golly. Well, do we just break the icebreaker then? <laughs> no, let's go ahead and do it. Do it? All right. So if you were on an island, wait, Dubai's an island, right? Nope. No. What they, am I thinking? They built an island. <laughs> they have built islands. That is correct, uh, I'm thinking actually, of Bahrain. Yes. I'm thinking yeah. of Bahrain. So anyway, let's say you are on an island. And uh, you can only have one food with you. That's the food that's going to sustain you for the rest of the time you're on that island until you're rescued. What would that food be? Mm, kumquat. Really? Wow. No, I just thought that was a ridiculous answer. <laughs> oh, okay. It's the best island. named fruit in the world. <laughs> I was here, no, uh, so that's why I chose because I, I was getting ready to like Google like what can you do with kumquat? <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't even know what it looks like. It just literally came to my head. Um, <laughs> What food would I have for forever on an island? Well, it would have to be something that could sustain me not only nutritiously but also flavorfully that I could also cross it into other disciplines like with leaves or ants or insects that I find. Uh, So 
I probably would go with something with a little bit of acidity to it from the standpoint of being able to break things down and add some flavor, but that might be too much after a bit. Am I overthinking this right now? I feel like I'm overthinking totally. this a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll just go with uh, cantaloupe, I guess. <laughs> it's coming to my mind. Awesome. For a while, I thought we were going bacon until you said acidity, and I was like, I, I don't know where he's going now. Cantaloupe. Cantaloupe. I didn't know where I was going either, to be able to do so. <laughs> but, you know, it's a good tropical Spend a little there. bit more time trying to get off the island then, you yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I don't have time to think I'll about start this. start naming things like Wilson and Spalding and there things like that. <laughs> so The Crucible's <laughs> Gift, this is your first book, right? Your inaugural book? It is book? my first book, yeah. That's pretty cool. What made you decide to write a book, and how long did it take for you to make the decision to actually write it? So I originally decided when I was th- – I'm 44 now. When I was 33, I wrote down a bunch of goals, and I said in 10 years or by in my 40s, I, wrote, I can't remember if I wrote like 44 or whatever, I want to write a book. I only looked at those goals like two other times in the last 10 years. I was busy getting married, having kids, you know, finishing my PhD, moving countries, all those simple things. <laughs> Somehow, though, in the back of my mind, it just sat there. And so when I was doing my podcast, my gosh, what the heck was my podcast? Executives, Executives After, After Hours. Hours. Thank you. <laughs> um, which is still on iTunes, by the way, uh, for a number of different reasons. But when I was doing Executive After Hours, I just started seeing this theme of the leaders. And just to give the audience a premise of the show, that the tagline is, I care about who you are, not what you do, because who you are defines what you do. And so I would, I would talk to CEOs from around the world and executives about their personal journey, really starting when they were a child all the way up to where they were at now. And I was really interested, not at all about their job, but about how they got to where they were at in their life and the mistakes they made, the trials, the tribulations, the successes. Um, And I was really trying to have, uh, lack of a better term, an authentic conversation that didn't feel like I was worried about tactics or strategies or any of that stuff because – as you guys know, there's a thousand podcasts that talk about tactics and strategies and things like that. So when I was doing this, about episode between 50 and 90, I saw this pattern again and again, and that's where the light bulb just went off in my head, that this is the book and this is the content for the book. And so um, when it came to writing the book, I, I took kind of a unique method. My family and I have four kids, ages 10 to 3. And we flew to Lisbon, and in six weeks, I wrote the book. Wow. On Monday, I would research and write the outline for the book. On Tuesday, I would finish the research and finish filling out the outline on the book. So on Wednesday, uh, my wife and I, she would interview me. What was great about having my wife interview me is she didn't know the content. So she could ask me clarifying questions that helped kind of create some depth and simplicity in the book. And then on Wednesday night, I would send it off, and I'd have it transcribed Thursday morning, and I would write that chapter Thursday, Friday. Wow. And then I would do it again the next week. And so over six weeks, I wrote six chapters, and then I started the editing process after that, and that's usually you know three, four months from that point on. But the initial first draft took six weeks. That is amazing. That's very fast when it comes to books. I've been writing a book now with uh, one of the guys that's here in the room with the Steve. We've been writing this book for, what, 26 years now, I think? (laughs) We've got a number of books. You were all about a decade into it by the time I met you both. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You may want to just tie it off and just either start again or just say the end wherever you're at. We have chapter titles. I think that's about all we got right now. So. (laughs) 
then you can say it's a page turner at least. Hey, there you go. It, it, it'll take you less than 10 minutes to read this whole book. So <laughs> chapter one, chapter one. So what chapter made you want to write a book about authentic leaders that are successful as opposed to all the other leadership books out there? What were you trying to get yeah. to that you felt like was not being served? The concepts that come out in the book, and as you guys flip through the book, there's the, the idea of what's called the authentic leadership model. And in that model, it's, it's just kind of like a bullseye effect, if you will. At the end of the day, what I found is that these ideas were inside me because this is how I've always felt about leadership. Mm-hmm. Being true to yourself has a much bigger impact on those around you than trying to be something else or act a certain way or never being accountable or passing the buck or any of those fables that leaders tend to have. When we move to the 21st century or 22nd century where we're going with social media, you can't be anything other than yourself because anyone can call you out on it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they start calling you out on this other side of you that you're not being true to, it actually starts to erode trust really fast. So this idea kind of came from within because I consider myself to be really authentic. But as I interviewed leaders who were transparent and honest and uh, focused on relationships, it just really backed up my beliefs with qualitative research. And then I went and found quantitative research on top of that to kind of you know, triangulate uh, my ideas. Yeah, I love that you mentioned in the book really early on, uh, and actually in the title, <laughs> that, uh, it's pretty early on that many yeah. of the authentic leaders that you've come across had this like crucible moment. And uh, I thought, man, that resonates so well with you know the essence of our show, Beyond the Rut. Like, you know, we're we're targeting folks who feel like they're in a rut. Um, life may be good, for, you know, looking from the outside in. But when you ask that individual, they, they just feel stuck. They're, they're just kind of doing the same grind day in and day out. And they're not really thriving in the way they want. But for them to really get out of that rut, they've got to have that moment that makes them realize, wait, it doesn't have to be like this every day. And you know, with what I'd read in the book so far, it looks like a lot of these leaders had some kind of pivotal moment or season yeah. in their lives where they said, this is it. This is what defines me. And um, mm. would, would you be able to tell us more about that? One of the things that I really found fascinating is that these leaders that really understood the role of adversity, whether it was immediately, which was was almost none, or six months, a year, five years later, even one of them was 12 years later, mm-hmm. what the question they started asking themselves is they went from it happened to me that it, to it happened for me. And when they changed that preposition, they were able to actually then define the adversity for themselves, not let the adversity define them. And that becomes really important because many people play the victim role. It happened to me and, oh, woe is me. And we all probably know people like this. <laughs> the problem with that is that they're in the rut, right? They literally wow. are in the rut. They can't get out. And so when they start saying, well, you know what, was it to me or where's the for me? And when they start doing the for me side of it, they can actually then get out of that rut and start getting on a new path and lay their new bricks moving forward. Right. And so it's just in that preposition that I found many of these leaders decided to ask a different question that was more appreciative in nature and growth-based in structure, uh, if you will. That's a great concept because I think what you're saying in this book, too, is you're trying to discover, help people discover who they are. You're not telling anybody to be a certain way. You're trying to find out who they are because uh, like we were talking earlier about, you know, you can dress nice, you can look nice, you can act nice. But if it's not authentic, then it's not real. You won't be able to keep that up very long. But if you're no, just if you honest, feel bad about yourself, sorry, I no, didn't go ahead. You off. No, go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the problem, right? Is that that as human beings, we were, you know, some of us are authentic from day one. Some of us grow into ourselves. 
we're evolutionary as human beings, hopefully. Right. Uh, but those leaders who are in their 40s and 50s who still think they need to have some sort of shiny veneer all the time can't be seen to be fallible. Within that makes you fallible. Right. It's, the, it's, the, it's the ability to show that you are human is what people really want because they, in my opinion, you know, the leaders that I love and the way I try to lead is that I want people to feel comfortable around me and around themselves with respect in the, in the equation in a way that says he's human, he owns his mistakes, but he also owns the responsibility of the process and he expects the same from you because he knows that you have certain qualities and traits that add value to this. And there's certain things you're not going to be good at. I'm not good at accounting. Why would I pretend to be? <laughs> right. Right. So like knowing that makes me more human and realistic to the people around me. And to me, that's that's just so – I don't know. Like one of, one of my – sorry, I get pretty passionate about this obviously. Um, good. One of the things that really, 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 really grind, just, just grinds me is this idea or notion that we have to work sometimes for 40 or 50 years of our lives – the question people should be fundamentally asking themselves is, do they want to work in a world where they have two identities, a public self and a private self, that are so far apart that it almost becomes exhausting? And I think to myself, you could die tomorrow, not to be so morbid about it, but why would you want to spend your time and waste your time and your energy and your focus on trying to manage this, this impression, right? You, we all have this sense of imposter syndrome already. And so if we can just acknowledge that we have it and move closer to our public and private self it actually gives us a sense of relaxation and confidence that, you know what, I'm okay. And so just to kind of close the loop on this, I just get really, really frustrated with people who seem to think that they need to act as two totally different people for all of their lives because the level of exhaustion that happens and, and the people they work with see through it at some point, and that also erodes the fundamental um, framework of trust. I think you hit a perfect point there of it's just exhausting because now I have to remember what I told you that I was or I stood for or I like or, or am. And I can't remember that much. And I'm too lazy to put on that much effort into, you know, I told everybody I love jazz because loving jazz is a cool thing to do. It's like, no, I don't like jazz. I don't want to sit and listen to it. And But if you're authentic, then you just can live that out every day. One of the comments I've always heard my whole life that when somebody says, you know, you're just like what I thought you would be like, I think, why would somebody have to say that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. And now let's talk about how you can use Capshow to repurpose and market your content. If you have a business like me, you can upload your cornerstone long form content like podcast episodes or YouTube videos into Capshow, and it will create all your content marketing assets for you. And here's the coolest part. Capshow is more than just a robotic AI tool. It's a powerful blend of artificial and human intelligence designed by marketers to help you organically reach more of the right people on more platforms. Go to beyondtherut.com slash Capshow, that's C-A-P-S-H-O, and start your 14-day trial and see for yourself. Now, Back to the show. Why do you think people f have this shiny veneer of a public-private in your perspective? I mean, you come across a lot of people. I think mostly it's because they want to appear like they want to be. You know, I want mm. you to think that I'm that way. Even though I'm not, it's easier to just get people to think I'm that way because then I can, in a way, pretend like it. 
And it also makes it easier for me to judge other people because since I'm not authentic, I can just assume everybody else isn't. And that's truly what I think the human nature is. I want to be able to judge other people. And that makes it easier for me to just assume everybody's like me and not being real. I wonder if some part of that is also just people wanting to shortcut the results, you know, the the process that it takes to get to the results. So if I slap a fancy cover on, so if we slap a, a fancy cover on ourselves, you know, flashy suit, flashy, you know, this, say all the right phrases that people want to hear, then I'm going to get my foot in the door and then I'm going to exceed and excel faster than uh, anybody oh, yeah. else. But the reality seems to be that once I get my foot in the door, that facade only lasts for so long and then the spill kind of wears away right. and people are like, oh, shoot, we hired the wrong guy or we got the <laughs> wrong guy on this team. We're following the wrong person yeah. or or we hear about them on the news because they've committed some kind of scandal and yeah. you're like, huh, <laughs> you know, the character wasn't there the whole time and uh, I'm thinking about just when we're interviewing people at my work, you know, we, we have multiple layers. So like our recruiters go through a screening and then I do an initial screening and then we do an interview. And then we have peers come in and interview. There's like a five-layer process to this. And in that, uh, we hired a really great person. But also in that, there were some folks that were ready to hire that once the peer interview level came in, they they had already dropped the facade. Right. And we're like, oh, oh, no, <laughs> we're not hiring this person. No way. Or uh, when they realized they had to do one more check-in with our vice president, they're like, oh, no, I thought I was already picked. I'm out. And well, it's, so. it's also like you said, James, I think people, they want – Maybe they've told somebody they're the expert. So now, especially as a leader, you've started a company or you've gotten down the road. It's too late, they feel like, to admit that they're not good at everything. And so that's where businesses start to fail 10, 15 years in because they realize, I'm not good at accounting. I'm not good at, you know, uh, organization or management. I should maybe be the leader, the the visionary, but I shouldn't be the guy running the show. Because there's certain yeah. aspects I'm not good at. I should either hire that or let somebody else do it or something, but be authentic in that. And and in your book, you talk a little bit about that. Understanding you allows you to to focus on those areas you're good at, not the ones you're not good at. Yeah, and I think what's really important about this whole conversation and being authentic, and I, I'm very clear about this in the book, I can't define that for you. Because your authenticity is different than my authenticity. Like for me, I'm a really outgoing person. Not everyone's outgoing. Does that make you less authentic than me because you're not outgoing? No. What it does, when we think about the idea of being authentic, it's about – because we often give this idea of authenticity of being, oh, he's so real and so this and so that. And yes, that is one aspect of being authentic. But the other side of it is just being okay with you, just being the best version of you. And there are certain things you can do to become a better version of you within the same capacity of being you. You know, one of the principles I talk in the book, talk about in the book, is this this idea I call the 30% rule. And the 30% rule is the ability to turn yourself up 15% or turn yourself down 15% depending on the context. So that really gives you a 30% swing of this idea of living an authentic you. So here's an example is that when I'm on stage or even when I'm teaching in front of a class – I'm, I'm, I'm more theatrical, I'm more humorous than I would be at my house. Right. But then when I go to my in-laws house, I don't talk that much. I kind of stay in the shadows, but I'm still me, but I'm trying to survive in that context in a way that's respectful to my in-laws. So I'm not losing myself, but I'm being aware of what that situation requires for me to be the best version of myself in that moment. Does that make sense? That makes total sense because I hear sometimes people say, well, you know, you're different in different situations. Well, it's because 
there, there are different things called for in different situations. I'm, I'm like you, when I'm teaching a class, I'm obviously a little bit more serious. I'm more uh, focused on the material, but if, if you and I just go to dinner, I'm not going to talk as much, obviously, because I'm not teaching the class. I'm going to listen more. I'm going to be a little different, but I love what you said. You know, authentic can't be defined for somebody else. It just is who you are and you have mm-hmm. to figure that out. So out of this 140, uh, people that you uh, interviewed for this book, what was the one thing that you found the most fascinating or maybe you didn't expect going in? You know, the, I think the one thing that was that I was always kind of surprised by uh, were some leaders who who would come on the show and tell me their story. And then all of a sudden they would say, hey, listen, can you not publish that? I don't want anyone to know that about me. And then yeah. I would think to myself – but you realize what the show was about <laughs> before you got on. So what are you worried about? And I'm talking minor things like a divorce. Right. I'm, I'm not talking about like a drug habit they used to have or anything like that. I mean, just very minor stuff. But they were so caught up in people judging them right. for their brand, if you will, that they, they were really trying to pull that public and private self apart from each other, really far apart. And I really found that fascinating because they were really successful people. But I left myself wondering often, how do they feel inside? How are they connected to themselves? What battles are they having that says, you know what, if the world finds this out about me, they might think less of me. Right. You know? And so for me, those were always really fascinating when that would occur. Not that it happened like that frequently. But the other thing that I found <laughs> – that would be really bad if it did, by the way. Um, <laughs> the other thing that I found really interesting was the leaders that I thought would be really authentic um, – weren't inauthentic, but I think they were so business focused that that certain aspects of my model, like the idea of being compassionate, didn't really fall into their sphere. They did, they really didn't care about that. It was usually about the bottom line, not about the human capital side of thing, the human consequences. Right. Uh, and I and so I always found that a little bit fascinating as well. I probably shouldn't have because that's just capitalistic society at times. Right. But I found it really interesting from that perspective. Did you find those people were were more uh, kind of transparent or less transparent? The ones that really didn't have that kind of compassion relationship type. Yeah. Leadership. So I'll give you an example. There was there was a guy I interviewed who was I think he was in his late sixties and he had been um he's been a leader, like the head of a major organization for I don't know, twenty years, CEO of an organization. And when I asked the question, what advice would you give your twenty two year old self? And he said none. I just kind of thought to myself, wow. Well, that's not very self that's not very reflective. <laughs> you wow. know, like to be in your late sixties to not say you would do anything differently or better or at least be more aware of the possibilities. And it made me really feel like there was this lack of self in the human being. Um, And that, to me, when I saw those examples, and I've known the person for seven years at this point, um, when those examples came up, it really blew the doors off because I just thought to myself, you know, you you clearly haven't spent any time on you. You haven't (laughs) spent any time processing your life and what it means and what contributions you've made and, and what things you would do better. Uh, but then I don't know if that's a reflection of me uh, as a human being. And that's where I'm at in my journey. You know, we're all in different places in our journey, whatever that journey is going to take us to. So for this individual, he might have been feeling, you know, fulfilled and formed and didn't feel the need to go back. They didn't mean he was any less authentic per se, but could he have been more aware and more compassionate or more 
you know, behavioral, have more higher levels of behavioral integrity, maybe, you know, without digging too deep into his background. I don't know if that makes sense, actually. It does. I would be fascinated to meet somebody like that. Just said, you know, when I was 22, I was totally awesome. I wouldn't have changed a thing. I believe he walked on water as well, but that's a whole different individual, I believe. Yeah, there you go. I'm like, okay, well, I wouldn't change a thing. You'd think in a relationship in some way you would feel that in in some way. So so how did you end up in uh, Dubai? So, uh, I mean, the short of it is that I had a failure. <laughs> so, like, um, that's not how I mean, the failure didn't put me here. The failure gave me the option of coming here. So I was, uh, you know, teaching in higher ed. And the holy grail of higher ed is getting tenure. And so at my university that I used to be at, I was it was two publications short. And I thought I was going to get the, the, the tenure. But one of the... One of my personality quirks, if you will, and it's a quirk, is I'm super entrepreneurial. Entrepreneurial, and so I'm constantly chasing these dangly, shiny things on the side, <laughs> versus being really focused on research. And so, research is a very, very time-consuming process. You've got to read a lot, a lot of research, a lot of data analysis, a lot of writing, a lot of rewriting, a lot of rewriting again for two <laughs> people to tell you your paper sucks. There's a lot more rewriting after that. Um, it's a lot of work. I was really always interested in starting my own business and doing my own thing. So when tenure came up, even though I was close, they saw that I was never fully committed to the university. I was always doing kind of other things. And so I didn't get tenure. And at the same time, uh, one of my best friends was teaching out here at the university. And he said, hey, would you want to come out? And I had kind of the initial, I think, stereotypes come up, you know, oh my God, Middle East, you know, <laughs> terrorists, am I going to die? What's going to happen? Um, and then as you start doing the research, this this country that I'm in is way safer than the US. Right. Like there's almost <laughs> zero crime. And standard of living that's a bit better. There is a lot to do, a lot to see that I wouldn't be able to experience in the States. And most importantly, I'm really... One of, one, of my, one of my core values is inclusion uh, for those that are different and not the same. And so I thought there's no better way than to give that to my children than to put them in a world where they go to school with Emiratis, Jordanians, Egyptians, uh, uh, British, Irish, uh, South Africans, you know, I mean, the, right. the UN of, <laughs> of the world. For me, that's a gift that I'm giving our kids. We're going to come back soon. Um, I've, I've, Got many things going on outside my my university job again because I'm an entrepreneur, uh, and one of them is what I'm hoping is going to take me out of university and, and starting a, a a large company and go for broke. <laughs> there you go. That that's that spirit in you have to feed, otherwise it just drives you crazy at night. You yeah, <laughs> it's interesting, right? Like this idea of life's nudges, <laughs> which I find fascinating. That life will keep kind of pushing you in a direction, and you can ignore it. But you just kind of feel pulled to it, like a calling, right? Like you're a pastor, you said. So that was a calling that you had. And maybe at first you didn't want to listen to it. But over time, it just kept calling to you. And you thought, okay, why should I fight it? And that's kind of how I feel about being an entrepreneur is that I just keep chasing these things because it's exciting and fun. And and then I get pulled back because, you know, uh, my current job is safe. I have this stigma about taking a job and being in a career that makes you unhappy. I think your kids see that. I think that you feel it. I think your spouse feels it. And I think the people around you feel it. And so I, I admire the people that can compartmentalize a, you know, a job they don't like with life. But because I feel like I'm pretty authentic, it kind of just bleeds together for me. 
And so I'm really, really, really focused on creating a future for me that shows my kids that doing what you love is absolutely a must in life because otherwise, as I said earlier, you could die tomorrow. And what legacy are you leaving? They had a job he didn't like, but he was a great dad. You know what I mean? So like for me, it's this whole big picture. It's not one or the other. I totally agree. That's really the essence of this podcast is, do you really want to spend your whole life doing something you hate? Because it does bleed into your kids and your relationships and everything else. So if you if you live that out, you just teach your kids and, and the people around you, it's okay to do that. I would rather fail yeah. at something than just do something safe for the rest of my life in order to get a paycheck and just never risk anything. Oh, 100% agree. Well, awesome. Thanks for coming on, James. If, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? What's your home number there? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, sure. It's uh, 1-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-888-
Go to beyondtherut.com slash cap show, that's C-A-P-S-H-O, and start your 14-day free trial with the Cap Show team today and join me inside that community.